everyone, I'm Dr. Susie Green, the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, and welcome to my new podcast, Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. I'll be chatting to both academics and practitioners who are working in the evolving field of positive psychology coaching. We'll be looking at the interplay between the complementary fields of positive psychology and coaching psychology within an evidence-based coaching context. I'm hoping to equip practitioners with both knowledge and skills, and most importantly, have a positive impact on their way of being as positive psychology coaches. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Biswas-Dina. Robert is a researcher and coach. As an academic, Robert has published more than 70 papers on topics as wide-ranging as leadership coaching, hospitality, happiness, and strengths. He leveraged this expertise to help pioneer the field of positive psychology coaching. Robert is passionate about the ways that scientific theory, assessment, and research can inform coaching practice. He's trained thousands of professionals around the world, including at his own coach training institute, Positive Acorn. Robert is author of a number of books on coaching, including Practicing Positive Psychology Coaching and Positive Provocation, 25 Questions to Elevate Your Coaching Practice, which will be released this year. And that's one book that I'll certainly be purchasing. Well, welcome, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here and I'm glad you're doing this. Yes, well, it is an honor and uh, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We have met at numerous conferences and congresses over the years. Uh, I can't even remember. It's definitely going to be showing my age, Robert. You were just a young boy <laughs> when I first met you. But so lovely to, particularly over the last few years, to have got to know you a little bit better. And uh, also recently, uh, your kind invitation for me to join you on a panel for the uh, WBEX coaching conference as well. And of course, yourself, Christian and Lona and I, we be presenting a pre-conference workshop at the upcoming IPA Congress in Vancouver, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, me too, really. And, and not just excited for the material and for Vancouver, but to work with you as well, the group of us together. Yeah, it's fantastic. And as many of the listeners may or may not know, of course, I grew up with coaching psychology here in Australia. Uh, Robert's in the US, Christian's global citizen really, but uh, spent a lot of time in the UK and I met him through the University of East London and Alona I also met uh, through my colleague Stephen Palmer. And I think we bring different perspectives to it and I think that's only been helpful for me in understanding and developing yeah, my understanding of positive psychology coaching. I mean, I agree with that. I don't think the four of us even necessarily agree on some of the no. <laughs> basic things. And yet I don't think we need to, because I, I think it's an error to think that one of us has the monopoly on the truth or owns the topic. And I think there's there's loads of seats at the table and, and the table is better for having people sit at it. Absolutely. And I think to the way that you, I guess, deliver or engage in coaching in your most authentic ways is going to be different, you know, of how I do it and, and how you do it. And I think that's an important point for me. And I know with students as well in teaching students that finding their own authentic way of uh, coaching is really important. Yeah, absolutely. So, Robert, keen to hear a little bit about your journey. And if I reflect back, I started teaching at Sydney Uni 
in 2004, and it was the first positive psychology course in Australia, um, which I'm really proud to say that I was uh, delivering that back in 2004, which was pretty early on, as you know, in the positive psychology development. And you know, when your book came out, 2007 was the first book, actually, Robert, I do have a copy of it here on my bookshelf. I also have the other one, but I went searching for it and I think I've lent it to someone and it's not on the bookshelf at the moment. But I can't tell you what music to my ears it was to see someone within the world of positive psychology talking about coaching. Mm -hmm. And so from that point on, I just, I read everything that, I read that book, I I taught from that book, your next book, and have been following your work ever since. But I also know, because I think back when I was co-authoring my book uh, with Stephen Palmer, I was trying to find a definition because I was going back looking at the history of the emergence of positive psychology coaching. And as far as I'm aware, you coined that term, Robert, is that correct? I'm, from my research. As far as I know, I know that Carol Kaufman had written a chapter where she called it positive psychology and coaching. That's right. But, think- and, um, you know, it's not a genius move on my behalf, <laughs> but I just took out, I just took out the and uh, and just called it one thing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But um, when I was looking for the definition, I couldn't really find an explicit definition in that book. So I emailed you and uh, you came back to me and you said, if you don't mind me quoting you, and this is back in 2014, so it's a while ago, positive psychology coaching is not an endeavor distinct from coaching itself, rather it's an approach to coaching. That is, it includes coaching as usual. So if you were to see someone do it, you would see all the usual suspects, agenda setting, powerful questions and accountability but overlaid on this foundation of good coaching would be a series of interventions that are grounded in positive psychological science. But I am aware that your thinking has developed a little bit since then, or perhaps a lot. And actually, let me just quote from your article in 2020, um, which again, I quote quite a lot, Robert, which is, candidly, I've changed many of my views regarding the practice of positive psychology coaching over the past 15 years. My change of stance reflects an emphasis on coaching over positive psychology in positive psychology coaching. That is, at at its heart, positive psychology coaching is coaching. Yeah, absolutely. So, I don't know that I know. I'm I'm not the dictionary that should be consulted for the, you know, the standard definition. I, I just have thoughts about this. Yes. And I sort of think of positive psychology coaching as a topic as something that has sort of evolved in the way software evolves, you know, a 1.0, a 2.0, 3.0. Yes. And 1.0 was sort of like, hey, there's the science of positive psychology where we study what goes right with people and we're beginning to develop some very discrete interventions like write down three things you're grateful for. And that seems to have some small utility in boosting people's well-being. And so at that time, I think we were doing things like, okay, so with your coaching clients, you should have them write down three things they're grateful for. That's very 1.0. Yes. I've moved on quite a bit since then, fortunately, in part because of the realization that that's just prescribing something to your client. That's that's, that's not right. really coaching, right? <laughs> it doesn't fit with autonomy either, does it? The psychological need of autonomy yeah, absolutely. in terms of yeah, you're telling, you're prescribing rather than, I guess, asking them um, what might work for them. Yeah, exactly. So even if they wanted to focus, let's say, on gratitude, and they might not even want to focus on that, but even if they did, 
I think a superior and more coach-like approach would be to ask them, well, what's your relationship to gratitude? How do you typically express gratitude? What do you notice about how people react to your expressions of gratitude? And then that just looks like coaching, really. Absolutely. It's much more natural, isn't it? Do you think, I often reflect back to when I was first learning to coach and I guess I was doing my clinical psych training at the time and I was introduced to the the good old grow model, which um, I have to have a bit of a giggle because one of my colleagues says, Susie, I don't know how you can run a whole day workshop on grow. It's G-R-O-W. That's it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that hard. <laughs> but of course, look, but you can, there can be a lot to it. And, and I also know in my clinical psych training, there was some reference to when you're a beginner that you may need more of a structured approach. And then as you become, I guess, more the unconscious competent, uh, if you like, there's much more, I guess, fluidity and confidence and comfortableness around drawing on that wealth of knowledge that you have. And then you sort of weave it and bring it to life in that quite authentic and natural way. And this, I'm only just thinking this right now, Robert, as you're speaking, do you think it's something to do with beginners versus maturity? Or do you think there are some people that will just be naturals at that from the beginning? Well, I think it does have to do a little bit with confidence. So let's use a specific example of using strengths within coaching. Yeah. And if I was teaching novice coaches, hey, here's how you coach, you're going to ask these powerful open-ended questions. But we want some of those questions to be around a client's strength, right? We're, we're kind of empowering them, helping them feel more resourceful. They want a framework, those novices. Yes. They want, you know, tell me what to do. And if you say you can have your client take a strengths assessment, identify their top five strengths, and then you can ask them some very predictable questions such as, how might you use this strength in this particular situation you're describing? Well, then they can relax because they don't really have to think it through. They're like, okay, I I can just do that. And I think that that's probably good enough. And I'm using good enough very intentionally. And maybe good enough coaching is good enough. Mm, I like that. But I think we can do better. You know, if given the choice between two surgeons, the one that has basic competency and the one that's masterful, <laughs> I'll opt for the latter. <laughs> but of course, you know, you you have to practice and develop your skill along the way. So even when I train novice coaches, I don't just give them the guardrails. And I do say, yeah, if you do that, that's sort of the 1.0, that's okay. That is good enough. But I want you to understand that there are other techniques. So for example, you don't even need to use a formal assessment. You can just spot a client's strength. But what that includes is you, the coach, labeling the client. And as soon as I say that, that crosses a whole bunch of like really, really tough territory for most coaches to hear because we want to use the client's language, not the coaches. We don't want to label people, et cetera. Right. Interesting. Interesting. What I tell them, so, you know, let's say I'm working with a client and I just noticed, and this actually happened, I noticed that the client really loved to figure things out and seemed quite adept at it. Now, I don't need to go say, oh, you know, can you real quick go take a 220 item (laughs) strengths assessment? I just said on the fly, you know what? It really seems like you're energized by this whole kind of problem-solving thing. It it almost seems like a strength to me. And I'm just going to throw out a label here. Are we dealing with a strength called puzzler? 
And I just yes. sat and made up this word. Yes. They came alive. They were like, I do puzzles all the time. It's funny. <laughs> and, like, and they really felt seen and heard. But I also was just kind of loosely handing that to them. If they said, oh, I hate that, or I, but you know, that, that word doesn't make any sense to me. I'm a problem solver. You make a lot of room for the client to take ownership, et cetera. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's where we are aligned because I agree. I tentatively offer, you know, those potential, as you said, labels, or if I'm going to introduce some research, I would sort of say, look, I'm aware of some research that might be relevant or may not be, but this would it be okay if I shared that? So it's how you introduce it, isn't it? But coming back to the strengths, Robert, because I know for, for a time and, and perhaps a little bit what you're referring to now is perhaps not needing to use an assessment. And I have to tell you, I think there are definitely some cultural differences, particularly when we're looking between the US and Australia. So mm -hmm. when I first started using strengths assessments and I was running workshops, actually, I had um, an American HR woman join the group and she was so blown away at how uncomfortable people were in the group. Yeah. Talking Tall about poppy. Yeah, we have that tall poppy syndrome. And look, it's changing. Our younger generation might be swinging a bit too much the other way, possibly. But um, with the older generation, they're just not used to talking about their strengths. And she said, oh, my goodness, like, yeah, that's what we've grown up with. And I'm sure there are differences from state to state or, you know, community and culture and whatever. But she just couldn't understand why it was so difficult for people. And even if we used the strengths profile and people, I, I remember walking around, there was a group of four ladies from the library. This was at a university. And I said, you know, well, you know, how did you go? And this woman said, well, this isn't me, you know. And I said, you do know it's a self-report. <laughs> like you filled it out. Yeah, anyway, right. and then immediately the three other ladies went, oh, yes, it is. And they gave authentic examples of where they had seen that strength in her. And you mm -hmm. could see her, like her face change, her body change. And by the end of the day, she's like owning it. <laughs> she's walking out of that workshop. So I've seen it particularly here in Australia. And I've always had a chat to Andrea and Stephen Palmer. And in the UK, it seems to be also can be a really helpful tool, I guess, to give people permission to talk about strengths and a language as well. What you've just said actually is sort of back to the definition, my definition of positive psychology coaching. You know, I said there was like the 1.0, which was pretty yes. clumsy application of an intervention. And then sort of 2.0, which is, it just sort of informs your questions, but it's kind of invisible to the client. And now for me, what I'd consider sort of 3.0 is doing these more cultural interventions. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is true. So I'll give you the strengths example of how I do this with strengths. But I think that coaching itself is a microculture and that you create norms between you and your client or the team you're working with or whatever it is, that that culture only exists there. And once the group disbands, that culture disappears. It's informed by the broader culture, but you get to create your own norms. So do you coach standing up? Do you coach sitting down? Which yeah. one of you takes the notes? Who, you know, what are the roles? You know, can your client pace about and think out loud, whatever it is, like that is the culture of your session. And some of what we need to do, I think, as coaches is create norms that support the subsequent interventions. So 
if I know that we're going to work with strengths or that that might be an angle that we're going to veer towards, and I'm working with people in Australia and I have a hypothesis that maybe there's going to be some tall poppy syndrome or some discomfort, I need to do some prep work. Yes. I can't just show up with my American <laughs> chest thumping, like, aren't we all awesome? Because <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't, doesn't work. So one of the things I might do is say, I'd love to just, before we talk about your strengths, just throw out sort of a thesis statement to you. And I'd love to get your reaction to it. Strengths are an opportunity to contribute, not to shine. Love that. And a lot of people, that will be just what they need need to hear. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Or that's how I've always thought of it. Or... And just in doing that small amount of prep work, yes. now talking about strengths, just they can ease into it. And I've done versions of this in Japan, right? In places where you'd think there'd be strong humility norms and it, it works. And it's not always just with that phrase, but it's sort of like saying out there is humility in the society. You, we don't want you getting on the bus and turning to the person next to you and saying, you know what, I'm at my best because <laughs> that's not going to work. No. But here in the privacy of our conversation, I don't think you think you're better than other people if you say you're really detail-oriented or that you're organized or that you're persuasive. I think you're just saying authentically that you're kind of good at that thing and we yes. should talk about it. Yes. And just doing that sort of opens the door, I think, to a better conversation. Yes. And again, it makes me recall a client many years ago, a clinical client actually, so when I was still doing quite a bit of clinical work and he'd come along and he had seen a number of psychologists before, which is always a bit of a red flag that he, he, he'd not been happy with any of them. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness. But um, I'd said to him, look, well, my approach is a little bit different. So, you know, I do take more of a strengths-based approach. And he said, strengths? He said, well, if I focus on my strengths, what will happen to my weaknesses? <laughs> so, so it was quite black and white. I mean, he had a lot of black and white thinking anyway, but when I was sort of able to unpack that and help him to see that we weren't avoiding, you know, areas for development and in fact, strengths can be really helpful and energizing. And so it was about, yeah, making it, making it meaningful to him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I would probably potentially call that and it may have come out of my clinical training, we used to call it setting the frame, like, you know, setting the frame of how we're going to work together and I guess clarifying yeah, different ideas of what these terms mean as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah but I, I do know in the early days, Robert, here when I, because I was doing, as you know, this from about 2004 in Australia, honestly, a lot of people thought I was Pollyanna out the front, (laughs) you know, talking in workshops and there was a lot of cynicism, but thankfully it's really changing and COVID's been really a positive thing in many ways here in Australia to talk about mental health, to seek therapy and to be more proactive about their well-being, thankfully. But Robert, I really would love for the audience to hear your journey into the field of coaching because um, uh, you grew up, I guess, with your incredible father and mother from the world of positive psych, but your dad himself was doing research. When did he start? He's, you know, back in what year would it have been his research on subjective well-being? Well, his seminal article was published in 1984. So, yeah. but he had been thinking about it for a long time before that. For a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up in a family of psychologists and, you know, the first time I ever heard of Marty Seligman, the, you know, the founder of, of the positive psychology movement was probably in, I would guess, 
77. And I was a kid, obviously. But my mom was explaining to me about learned helplessness and about how that was going to guide her research because she noticed that some highly intelligent kids would act sort of in a helpless way and give up, but other kids who are really bright would would really perform sort of at their expected level. And she did a couple of studies with her mentor and published them. And those were the seminal articles in mindset research. Wow. Carol Dweck was, was that mentor. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So the, the seminal studies in that field are Diener and Dweck, 1978 and 1980. Oh, wow. That's your mom. And then my dad was studying subjective well-being, you know, happiness, kind of just asking who's happy, when are they happy, what does that look like, how could we measure it, how could we define it, those types of things. So by the time 1999 or 1998 rolled around with the formal advent of the positive psych movement, I'd been steeped in it for a couple of decades. I, I collected my own data in a village in India on happiness in 1992. You know, so this is six years before absolutely the modern movement got started. But because, like a lot of coaches, I had a service mentality and I was very psychologically minded, I thought I'd be a clinician. You know, so I entered a, a doctoral program and I was trained to do therapy, but I just knew I didn't want to. I didn't want to sit in a room me. and do therapy, although I think it's a noble thing to do. Absolutely. It wasn't for me. Yes. And so I veered, sort of maybe even overcorrected and became a researcher. And I studied happiness, but I always missed that one-on-one conversational technology, the ability to, to help a person and, and see it, help them think through their life. And that's uh, this is around maybe now 2001, 2002, when I discovered coaching. Right. And I just thought, wait, this is like the non-clinical aspect of therapy. It has all that great interactional stuff, but it really can pull on my knowledge in a broad way for, of psychology. It, it just seems like a perfect fit for me. And I, I was just sold from then on. Again, it's been wonderful uh, to see someone like yourself embrace it. And now, you know, we're developing and talking a lot about the, as we said, the evolution of post-site coaching. But I'm really curious, and I know I'd, we probably need a part two podcast <laughs> coming up in the in the next twelve months. But um, what about your own practice? So you currently maintain uh, coaches, clients, and coaches? I do, and I always maintain. I mean, I would think of it as very boutique practice because you know, I do training and write books and you know all the, the things that coaches often do. But my favorite thing about coaching is to think about how coaching works. So yes. I'm, I'm just constantly thinking about like, yeah, yeah, we all know that silence can be good in coaching, but can we take it further than that? Are there different types of silence? Does silence have different qualities? Could each type of silence be used? You know, like some one type of silence might be it makes it uncomfortable for the client and it forces them to reflect quicker and come up with an answer. Another kind could just be, I'm getting out of the way and acknowledging you and giving you space. Interesting. So those might feel quite different to the client, even Mm. though nominally they're the same skill. This is the type of stuff I'm thinking about all the time. And I think in order to think about it and to sort of tinker with it, I have to be seeing some clients. So so it's just like to keep my foot in the water, I guess, and keep my skills a bit sharp. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I have uh, six senior exec coaching clients at the moment. I took a couple of years off, came back last year and reminded me how much I love it. And it does it. I think if you are teaching it and uh, developing in that field, it's so rich to be actually practicing it, isn't it? Yeah. I loved actually just to hear you say that you took time off. I also took time off. And it's something that I hear too seldomly from coaches as if like, oh, coaching just fills my cup all the time and I have never ending energy. And I think what I, I love to hear coaches say like, I'm a little burnt out on this, or I feel slightly overwhelmed, or I noticed that I wasn't looking forward to seeing my client. Like those kind of really honest statements, I think are great. And we need to have more open conversations about those things and taking breaks and self-care and burnout. Yeah, absolutely. And supervision, uh, you're a big supporter of supervision as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's great for people to record their own coaching, you know, with permission, et cetera, yes. to actually see what they're doing, you know, yes. see it with fresh eyes to get another person's feedback on it. And we just should never rely on our own intuition alone or, or professional experience alone. It's just so great to get someone else's point of view, whether it's based on a recording or just a description of a, a situation. Absolutely. And of course, it's a requirement as registered psychologists here in Australia. I'm assuming it's the same in the US. But um, as you know, coaches, uh, I'm not sure. Is it actually mandated by if you have ICF accreditation? Do you know? Or it's just recommended? It's not. I mean, the closest it comes is the mentor coaching requirement to get certified. But the ICF would be quick to say, well, there's a difference between mentor coaching and supervision. Yeah. So I, I think it's something that the ICF is thinking about and kind of tinkering with, and they haven't quite arrived yet, but they definitely yeah. value it and, and are pushing that direction. Yes. And I, again, having been in the coaching field for a long time, it's definitely um, developed and there's a lot more, I guess, non-site coaches that are engaging in supervision one-on-one -on -one yeah. with a professional and in many cases, engaging a professional psychologist coach because they want to learn more about the underlying psychological theory, you know, and, and, and application in particular to the clients that they're seeing. But, you know, as you said, even for myself, I have an incredible mentor that I've had for many, many years. And I just had, I have a monthly supervision session with her and I took a Hogan's personality profile for one of my senior clients there the other way. Boy, was it a fantastic session. And yeah. then, um, and Rhea, she really broadened my thinking because she's used Hogan's for a long time. And she was able to see some of the nuances that I couldn't see in the interactions of the scales. And so then I went back to do the debrief session with the client and it was really good. Like it would not have been that good if I hadn't had that supervision session with my supervisor. Yeah. I mean, it's so great to hear that, especially because it reflects, I think, in you, just that kind of humble attitude that I don't have yeah. it all figured out and I can always get better. And I'm always interested for myself um, where ethics is concerned. So I have a group of other coaches that are pretty experienced and very thoughtful. And I would say I'm bringing up an ethical issue maybe once every six weeks. Yes. I don't think I go longer than six weeks without discussing ethics. And sometimes it's just like, oh, I was thinking about giving a free, like some free or reduced coaching to someone if they allowed me to record the sessions, but is that ethical? Am I somehow pressuring them with a reduced fee to do something they wouldn't yes. otherwise need to think that through? And I think there are a million things like that that we should be thinking through that we often aren't. 
Absolutely. And uh, I think in clinical training, as you know, there are there are reasons why there are such strict boundaries um, and ethics. And I have, again, a bit of a chuckle because one of my peers at the time, every supervision session, she'd ask our supervisor, can I accept a gift? <laughs> he'd say, mm-hmm. no. And she'd go, what about a pot plant? No. <laughs> what about a, a playlist? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, in, in teaching students in Sydney Uni over 10 years, a lot of the students come, again, from very diverse backgrounds and hadn't had that ethical training. And, mm-hmm. of course, that was a component of our coaching masters, but I think it is an important one and one that is a great one for supervision topics. And also we call them journal clubs. I don't know if you call them journal clubs in the US, but in my business, once a month, we have a journal club. So we'll pick a, it's normally me that picks the article because I like reviewing what's happening and public being published. And then one of the associates will take a turn in presenting it. What are mm-hmm. the key findings? And then we all talk about how that may or may not be relevant in a coaching context. And yeah. um, that's always really great too, to hear from your peers, how they're using the research. Absolutely. And that I think is to kind of double back on, again, the definition of positive psych. Positive psychology is a science. And when you align yourself with it, you're saying, I am emphasizing science as a way of knowing. And science isn't the only way of knowing. You know, there's faith and common sense and then, you know, lots of legitimate ways of knowing. But if you say I align with science, it means that you've got to keep up with the research. You, it's a dynamic system of knowledge that's always changing. And I love for coaches even to realize that there's science on coaching and that there's coaching journals and, and that can be helpful. I'll give you just a quick example. I was so tickled to see just a few months ago that an article came out just discussing why we have a prohibition against asking why. You know, so many coaches say you shouldn't ask why questions. <laughs> That's right. And the author traced it and said, well, who's ever said that? You know, which thought leader ever espoused that? Go read any of the seminal books in coaching and you won't see anyone suggesting that. And yet it somehow became this inflated prohibition. Yes, I do recall Tony Grant, God bless him. He did say, you know, what he, actually he used to use coaching questions. So why wouldn't you potentially use why? I think he used to say. And I think it helped people uncover that it may take you down the problem focus road rather than the solution focus. But he didn't flatly say, don't ask why. Like if there's benefit or there's reason to ask it, then yeah, ask it. <laughs> exactly. And so if there's benefit, so that, then the alternate question to Tony's is, why might you ask why? Exactly. I love it. Yeah. Right? Why? Yeah. And then you just have to answer that, you know, and there are perfectly legitimate reasons why you might. Absolutely. Now, Robert, I could talk to you for a long time. Um, and as I said, hopefully we might have a part two in, in future podcasts, but I am very mindful of your time and so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today and share your knowledge with everyone that will be listening. Are there any recommendations or wisdom for perhaps new coaches or coaches that are new to either coaching psychology or positive psychology? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I can tell you one of the things that has impacted me the most, and it came from Christian Van Neuerberg, our our colleague. And and he just came for a visit a couple months ago. And he said, I don't know that I'm expert in anything. Nice. And I said, well, Christian, of course you are. I mean, you have you have a doctorate, like you're expert. And he said, yeah, but, you know, I don't know anything for certain. And I almost thought he was joking, like taking humility to an extreme, but he wasn't. Oh, I know. And although I 
am more comfortable suggesting that people can have expertise perhaps than than he is there is something about feeling like look this may work but i don't have it figured out and i'm open to change and that's what i notice is a distinguisher between really advanced coaches and novice coaches. I I find that sort of like the mid-career coaches that are like, I do it this way because that's amazing and that always works. And I've got this tool that's so shiny and that just feels qualitatively different than, yeah, I kind of have this leaning, but you know, I don't know. Absolutely. It's that openness, isn't it? And I know myself, Robert, during my life and not just with coaching, but every time I think, oh, I've got it, something comes along to shake me up and go, no, you haven't got it. Yeah. So so that's my advice, I guess, to the novices that you want your feet under you. And so it's nice to think that you have these tools that are this model that is the truth. But I think it's actually more empowering to say, this is workable, but it's not the only way to look at it. And probably things are going to change. Absolutely. It's that intellectual humility and yeah, I think openness. So, um, well, I look forward to learning more from you and, and everybody else at the Congress. It's going to be such a fantastic time. So thank you so much, Robert. And uh, we thank you and we look forward to seeing you again soon. It was super fun. Thanks. I'd, I'd come back anytime. Thank you so much for listening to Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. If you're new to the field, check out my two co-edited texts, Positive Psychology Coaching in Practice with Professor Stephen Palmer and Positive Psychology Coaching in the Workplace with Wendy Smith and Professor Alona Bonniewell. You might also like to check out our new Academy Plus and use the tab on our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au, where you can learn more about positive psychology coaching with me. Don't forget to sign up for our free e-news when you're there, where you'll be kept in the loop for all things positive. Bye for now.